Let's pray together. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, and perhaps these words are familiar to some, said, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, that's the the call that as your people you have issued to us, that you have placed upon us. Lord, that we wouldn't simply trust Jesus Christ and then go about our business, but Father, that day by day and, and, and week by week and ultimately year by year, Father, that we as your people would grow less and less like the people we were on our own and more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you call us to be students of your word. You call us to be passionate in our worship, Father, fervent in our prayers, Father, loving in our fellowship together with one another. All of these things, Father, are wonderful and beautiful, and yet they all take sacrifice, laying down our lives for them as well. And Father, we're just here for another Sunday morning to lay down our lives once again. Father, some of us willingly and joyfully saying, Lord, whatever the the week, the days ahead hold, we're, we're, we're ready to go where you want. Father, some We come to lay burdens down and heartaches down and we are exhausted and we need you to fill us back up so that we can even begin to think about serving you all over again. Father, you know all our hearts. You know we come from different places and situations, Lord, conditions. You know every every need and hurt. Father, every longing and every joy. And Father, for the next few minutes, uh, I'm just going to ask that you would, for each one of us, just kind of set those things aside, deal with them as, as need be. Father, not so we can listen to a sermon, but so that we can pay attention to Jesus. Father, your word says it's living and active, that it can penetrate the deepest places of our lives. Father, you do that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. You do it because Jesus died and rose again. And Father, I'm going to ask that for the next few minutes as we have time together in your word, that you would work in powerful ways. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd come and guide us in truth. That through the ministry of your spirit, you'd guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, that that because your spirit is here, we would be delivered from all that stuff that came in with us. Those nagging thoughts and those persistent fears. Father, those questions that don't seem to have answers, that you would just sweep it all aside so that for the next few minutes, we wouldn't hear the voice of of a preacher, but we might see and hear from Jesus. Father, as we go to your word, may we see Jesus clearly this morning, and may we as we go to your words, see him only. And Father, in a little bit, we're going to leave. I pray that we would leave rejoicing, not because we came to church, saw our friends, and had a good time, but because we met with Jesus, in whose name and for whose glory and kingdom we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and just take your Bible right out and turn in it with me to Acts chapter 20. As we continue... Our study in the book of Acts as we continue to follow Paul as he is, excuse me, as he is making his way toward Jerusalem and wrapping up this third missionary journey. Our time in God's Word this morning will be here in Acts chapter 20, really about the last half of the chapter. And man, we just, we have so much, and I felt the same way in first service, so much to, to sort of process and, and, and give thanks for and rejoice for today as we think about these graduating seniors and the example they are and the work God's doing in their lives as we think about the culmination of this process of the pursuit of the building across the street and all these things and 
And yet the most important, of course, is that we come together and worship Jesus who makes all these other things possible. And we worship him when we sing and we worship him when we pray, but we also worship him when we dig into his word and study it together with open hearts. So I said, I want you to find your way to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at the, the text itself in a moment, but just to set up where we're headed in the scripture this morning. Let me begin by saying, and, and, and I know many of you are, are going to understand and be familiar with this far better than I am, but in, in the sport and the athletic events of track and field, particularly in track and field relays, you know if you've ever watched a relay, certainly if you've ever participated in one, that in track and field relays, handoffs are everything. That you can have the fastest sprinters on the planet. You can give them the best, most cutting-edge nutrition possible. You can give them the the, the world-class training regimen, and you can buy all four of them brand-new shoes. But if they are not able to navigate the transfer of an 11-inch cylinder out of one sprinter's hand and into the next, all of that preparation is lost. You're disqualified. You do not get to move ahead in the race the way that you've been planning for months, maybe years, to do. In track and field relays, handoffs are everything. And I say that because this morning's passage in Acts chapter 20 is, in fact, spiritually speaking, a handoff kind of moment. Because in what we're about to read together, the Apostle Paul, who last week, if you were here, you will recall, and if you were not, you need to know, last week, Paul, who is on his way to Jerusalem for Pentecost, opted, we'll throw the map up here on the screen so you can see where he's headed, he opted not to make one final visit to one of his favorite places that he'd ever been and served, uh, the church in Ephesus. You see it almost right there in the middle of the screen above the arrow. Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He would like to stop off in Ephesus and see his friends there one more time, but we saw last Sunday that he opted not to because he had a stronger desire, a passion in his heart. But this morning what we find as Paul continues that journey is he has stopped, he's traveling by ship. The ship he is on has stopped in the port city of Miletus, just below Ephesus there. And Miletus just so happened to be about 30 miles down a long and winding road from Ephesus. And what Paul realized is that while he did not have time to go back to Ephesus once more, meet with the church, see the believers, just get together with them one more time, there was time enough to send for the elders to call for the elders of the church in Ephesus, say, come down and see me, let's talk one more time. And so that's what we are led to understand Paul did. He sent for the elders of the church at Ephesus, and what he knew in sending for them is this is the last time he'd ever see them on earth. He knew the road ahead was hard. He knew that that they would not cross paths again in this lifetime. And so what we're about to see Paul give the Ephesian elders is sort of a farewell address as he entrusts the ministry that until this point they had shared fully into their hands. It's handoff time from Paul to these church elders. And and essentially what we're going to see is Paul was with them not long, but long enough to say, hello, I must be going. And, And because I'm going and I won't be coming back, there's some stuff I want you to know. There are some things that we need to talk about as I turn the ministry over to you. And in what he said this morning, it's very simple. There are two things we need to see. There are two parts to this message that Paul gave the Ephesian church elders that he delivered to them. We need to get started. The first one is this. Paul spent the first half of this farewell address, if you will, speaking to the elders from the church in Ephesus, talking about, of all things, his own, number one, Christ-like example. 
As Paul met with the Ephesian church elders a final time, he began by talking about his own Christ-like example. Grab your Bible, Acts chapter 20. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 down to verse 27. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, From Miletus he, Paul, sent to Ephesus, called to him the elders of the church. And when they'd come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, which is the province where Ephesus was located, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shriek, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God." You know, as a sports fan, I've noticed, and if you're a sports fan, you've noticed this too, particularly in the realm of professional athletics, that oftentimes, far too often, in fact, it would seem that talent and accomplishment trump personal character. Have you noticed that about professional athletics? That if a guy can hit 40 home runs in a season, if he can score three touchdowns in a game, to most people, although they will say in principle otherwise, in reality, what the example, what our conversations show is, is it doesn't really matter so much if he's kind of a lousy human being. If he's helping my team toward that championship trophy, well, I can put up with, with quite a bit. In professional athletics, talent and achievement too often trump personal character. But not so, and this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, not so in spiritual leadership. Not so when it comes to the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. And so that's why in the first half of this message, Paul gets one chance left with these guys that he dearly loved, that he'd served in the trenches with for a very long time. He spends the first half of their final time together talking about himself and talking about his own example. Now, we look at that, and, and maybe we're tempted to be cynical. Paul, really? You're going to spend half the message talking about yourself? Are you self-absorbed, Paul? You're some kind of egomaniac? You're going to polish your reputation for future generations to behold? They don't forget about the great apostle Paul. Read his other letters. He does the same thing. He always talks at some point about himself. By example, why would Paul do that? One shot, half the message, talking about himself. You know why Paul did that? He did it because he understood that the character of the man behind the message matters. The character of the man behind the message matters. And so in these first 11 verses, Paul affirms three things about himself to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Here they are. I'm going to give them to you quick. Number one, he said, you will remember that when I was with you, I served with integrity. I served Christ and the church with integrity. Integrity. Verse 18, when they came to him, he said, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you. In other words, the way in which I conducted myself the whole time. 
And what we learned a few weeks ago is that Paul was in Ephesus three years, which I would submit to you is more than enough time to decide, does this guy's life match up to his speech? They saw him on, in the spotlight and when the spotlight was off, in public and in private. Paul says, go look at my life and look at my example. For three years I was with you, and you know the kind of man I was. You know I didn't roll into town hoping to collect a paycheck. You know I didn't come in here looking to cash in on your naivety. You know I didn't come looking to build my social media presence. No, I came for a different reason. Altogether, verse 19, you know that for three years I served the Lord with humility and with tears and trials that came upon me through the plots of Jews. You remember that, don't you? That Paul's time in Ephesus was not exactly a cakewalk. It wasn't a weekend carnival. It was tough. There was, as has it been everywhere else, there was opposition, there was persecution, and there was in Ephesus particularly this citywide near riot, this uprising of perhaps 25,000 people in an arena, essentially calling for Christian blood. Paul's would have been fine. Paul said, you know, it was a tough three years, but what you will remember, men, you will recall, I didn't bail. I didn't run. I didn't stir up trouble and leave you holding the bag to go on to my supposedly the next place God wanted me to go. No, I stayed in the trenches. I served alongside you for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I served with integrity, and in doing so, secondly, you will remember as well, again, Paul's example, that in serving with integrity, I also spoke the truth. Paul said, secondly, I've always spoken the truth. Verse 20, he said, You remember how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. What did Paul mean by that? Well, of course, he meant the gospel. That's what he came there with, right? The message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe in him as Savior, you will be saved. Paul came with that message, fundamental, square one. But he said, I didn't shrink from teaching anything else as well. I told you how to become a follower of Jesus Christ, how to be reconciled to God, and then I spent the rest of those next three years telling you what to do with it. How do I live as a follower of Jesus Christ in a world that is sick and twisted and decaying and dying? I didn't back off once. I gave it all to you, which would have included, on one hand, encouragement. Paul was a great encourager. Press on for the faith. Keep sharing the gospel. Trust in God whether things are good or whether they are bad. Never give up hope. Always be people of hope. We of all people have reason for hope, no matter what happens. Paul would have given them great encouragement, and no doubt he did. But at the same time, and certainly in equal measure, he would have given them correction and challenge as well. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you actually are expected to be different than the rest of the world. That means you pursue purity. It means you walk in holiness. It means when you sin, you own it and you confess it. And you reconcile. And Paul did both of those things, he says, for the span of, of three years. Simply put, what Paul's saying in verse 20 is this. If it enabled people to move toward maturity in Christ, I said it. I said it. I told them. I made sure they knew it. And that's why he could say in verses 26 and 27, look again at your Bible, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, what you do with it from here, that's between you and Jesus. You take what you've heard, decide what to do with it, but I didn't keep any secrets. I didn't hold anything back, and I can walk away saying, I did what I was asked to do, what God wanted Paul says, I leave with a clean conscience. 
And that's why he could tell the elders, thirdly, in terms of his example, these first 10 or 11 verses, Paul said, I served with integrity, I always told the truth, and now, he said, I have set my course. The third thing Paul says is, I have set my course. That is, and and we just saw this a minute ago, and we'll look at it again. He said, I know where I'm headed, and you know what else? I know it's going to be hard. I know where I'm headed, I know it will be hard, and I know I will never see your faces on earth again. But I've set my course. And Paul says, but that's okay. That's hard and that's sad. But he said, that's okay. Why? Because what he said in verse 24. He said, because I don't consider my life, my existence, of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I have one purpose, and I'm not stopping now. I will continue to preach Jesus everywhere I go. I've set my course. You know, in the mid-1800s, there was a a missionary, actually early 1800s, a missionary from England by the name of James Calvert. And James Calvert and his wife were called by God. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit to become missionaries, to leave their comfortable existence in England and move to the South Pacific island of Fiji, which at that time was not a resort destination. It was run by cannibals. And uh, Calvert said, this is where God wants us to go. And we're going to leave everything behind. We've set our course and share the gospel in the island of Fiji. And on this whole long sea voyage to Fiji, the captain of the ship, who evidently had been to Fiji before, did everything he could to deter Calvert and his wife from going among these people. He said, you don't understand. Apparently he knew what it was like there. These people are savages. They are cannibals. And he said specifically, if you go to this land with your gospel of Jesus Christ and whatever you want to do, you will lose your life and the lives of everyone who goes along with you. You know what Calvert said? He said, but Captain, what you don't understand is we died before we came. We died before. We already, we already counted that cost and said, if that's what has to happen for these people to know Jesus, that's okay. They could say with Paul, I count my life not as dear to myself. I have a purpose. I've set my course. And it's the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying the same thing here. He's saying, Jesus just isn't my Savior, as if that weren't enough. It is. But he said, now that he's my Savior, he is also my purpose and my compass. He's the reason I live. He's why I do what I do. Here's what Paul was saying. He's saying, Jesus Christ went all the way to the cross for me. I intend to go all the way for him. All the way. Wherever that way is going to lead me, in this case, Jerusalem, with bonds and affliction. And again, there's a, I guess there's this sense, and I, I keep talking about it because I can't get away from it. There's a sense in which you read that and you go, well, Paul, this, I mean, that's great, but it sounds a little self-serving. You, you want to make a plaque or something? I mean, Paul is talking a lot about yourself here, these last few minutes together. Is he just doing a little legacy building So he won't be forgotten? No. Not in the least. Because the reason Paul took the time with the Ephesian elders on this last time together with them to remind them of his Christ-like example, you know why it was? To use it as a catalyst to tell them to go back and do the same thing. I won't be going back. You will. You be, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be an imitator of me as I am of Jesus Christ. 
This is my example. You go, go back to Ephesus and shepherd that church. I give you the baton in the very same way. And that's why the last half of his message, verses 28 through 38, he moves from his own Christ-like example, number one, to second, his own, to his fervent challenge to these elders. He called the elders of Ephesus together, however many of them they were. And he said, now you've seen my example. You know what I did. You see how God has used it. Now, go and do likewise for these people. Look with me at verses 28 through 38. Follow along again in your Bible. Paul said, be on guard for yourselves. Now he's speaking directly to these church shepherds, elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands, Paul's talking about himself, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this matter, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. I want to ask a favor of you, if this is your church home. Whether you're on the formal membership role or not, but if this is where you call your church home, I want to ask you to do something as a favor and, and really as a ministry. And that is, I want to ask you if you will commit to pray regularly for this church's elders by name. I'm not going to make them stand up. I'm not going to put their picture on the screen. Look at the bulletin. You'll fi- figure out who they are. You can see their names, even if you don't know their faces. But I would ask you to pray hard for our church elders, for their wives and their families. And the reason I would ask you to do that, and, and, and listen, I mean, we on the staff, the deacons, other ministry leaders, we will welcome your prayers as well. But I would ask you to pray particularly for our elders because as Paul's words, this fervent challenge in these last 11 verses reveal, the task of an elder to shepherd the local church is both a high and a very heavy calling. There's great joy in it, but there's great sacrifice. And and the reason or the way that's revealed to us here is in really these first few verses picking up from verse 28. Paul gives these elders, he says, listen, guys, I can't come back there and do it. I can't hold your hand anymore. I can't walk alongside you. God has called me to something else. This church, however big it may have been, is in your hands. And you have two primary responsibilities according to these verses going forward. Number one, guard the flock. Guard the flock that God has entrusted to you. Because because in verses 28, 29, and 30, Paul said there are three dangers and they're coming. I want you to show, I want to show you what they are. Verse 28, he said, first of all, I want you to, to be on guard, guard the flock from yourselves. Look at what he says in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. That is to say, men, pay attention to the condition of your own heart. Make sure that you are walking faithfully with Jesus day by day. 
and hour by hour. Why? Because spiritual leaders are like everybody else. In fact, in some respects, they're more targets and more vulnerable to indulge the temptations that this world presents all of us with. And he says, first of all, nothing's going to happen if you don't guard your own heart. To guard your own heart, number one, but then verse, verse 29, he said, and not only guard your own heart from temptation and sinful indulgence and passion and all these other things, verse 29, he says, also be aware, verse 29, I know, not I suspect, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. What's Paul talking about? Paul says this, and, and these next couple things are not easy from the preacher's perspective to talk about, but we're just going to, it's there, so we're going to talk about it. What Paul says is this, he says, Guys, there are going to be people who walk into your church on Sunday morning. Probably not often, but now and then, with smiling faces, warm handshakes, and winsome personalities who have come with a secret agenda. The agenda may differ. It it may manifest itself in different ways, but they have not come to join in. They've come to take over, to sow discord and disharmony. And, And it happens. Paul calls them not annoying little pests. He calls them savage wolves. They want to tear God's people up. And he says, be careful. Guard the flock. That doesn't mean suspect everybody who goes to the visitor table looking for a gift on Sunday morning. It just means, as David says in the Psalms, know well the condition of your flock. Know who's here and what they're all about and what they need and what they desire. And be on guard. Guard your own heart, number one. Guard against infiltrators from the outside, number two. And then verse 30, he says, there's one more thing you need to guard from. He said, not only that, verse 30, but from among your own selves. Now, that may be the the gathering of elders themselves. It's probably a reference to, to the whole local church. Even from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And I take that to mean, I think what he's saying there is whether it's due to restlessness or jealousy or, or, or whatever else the, the case may be. He said there's going to be people who've occupied a pew for years who are suddenly going to get itchy and, and decide that, that they want their voice heard and they want their agenda honored and they're going to begin to divide and conquer the church family. And if you've seen it happen, and I know some of you have, everybody loses when that stuff doesn't get dealt with. And so here what Paul says to the Ephesian church elders, and I believe by implication to every elder of ever, every church that's ever existed ever since, he said, guys, it is your job to make sure it doesn't happen. It's on you. By God's grace, but it's on you. So you know what that means? It means you need to pray for your elders. And so do I. Fervently. Because what this means is, it means an elder doesn't just have to be a guy, well, he does have to be a guy who, among other things, knows the word, perseveres in prayer, keeps short relational accounts and doesn't let bitterness take root in his heart, deals with the issues in the church when they come up. He's got to do all that and more. Plus, if you read the rest of the New Testament and what it says about church elders, it says that everything they do, they have to do in love as well. Because elders are shepherds of a flock, not generals in command of the troops. So they have to do all these things, but they have to do it in a particular way in keeping with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what the sobering thing about that is? It is on that last point, love, that this group of men Paul spoke to, or their successors, fell. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. 
I'm not going to give you a whole exposition on, 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 certainly on the book of Revelation, but even on the first couple of chapters, except to say that in chapters two and three of Revelation, it's, it's a generation or so down the road from where we are here this morning. And, and through the Apostle John, Jesus speaks to seven specific, real, local churches, and he says, I have a message for each of these churches. Re- uh, Revelation 2, verse 1, he starts talking to the church at Ephesus. Here's what he says. Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. A lot of people think that word angel, which means messenger, he's actually saying pastor. To the pastor or the shepherd or shepherds in Ephesus, here's what I want them to know. That the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's Jesus, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake and not grown weary. In other words, they're doing exactly what Paul said to do here, right? They've been faithful. But look at verse 4. I have this against you. You left your first love. You have flawless doctrine. You have solid preaching. You know how to get ministry done and move people through the channels. You know how to take care of business. But along the way, you lost something. Your love for Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, you lose your love for Jesus Christ, you stop loving people real quick. This is the same group. It's their successors. And Paul said, you've got to guard the flock, and you've got to guard them in love. And they did a good job of guarding, but they lost the love along the way. And, and again, I plea with you, pray for such men hard and regularly. Here at Maranatha, God's given us extraordinary elders, and I don't say that to curry their favor. We know each other well enough to know what we're really like by now. But I've sat with them for 15 years tried to add up the hours. I don't even know how many hours that means. God has given us extraordinary elders, and they're extraordinary for two reasons. They love Jesus Christ, and they care deeply about you. And and you know what I know about them? They sacrifice a lot, and they work very hard, and I've seen them weep over sin. I've seen them rejoice over salvation. I've prayed with them. God has given us extraordinary elders, but they need our prayers as they watch over and guard us. Why? Well, to protect us from danger, one, but also at the same time and and in equal measure, the final thing Paul says is, is you got to guard the flock so that you can secondly give them Jesus. So that you, Paul said, can give them Jesus. And curiously, that's a, a charge that Paul gave them in the context of the last few verses of Acts chapter 20. He said that in the context of of a little word of encouragement in terms of financial integrity. Look again at verses 33 through 35. Paul said, when I was with you, he said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. For you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me. And in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I'll just tell you all week long, I've been asking myself, why in the world would Paul, he's got one shot with these guys, one chance to talk to them before he never sees their face on earth again. Why is the last thing he talks about how they handle money? I could think of more sentimental things to discuss. I could think of something that might be more exciting or engaging. And he says, let's talk about how you handle your cash. And we would presume he means both personally and in terms of the church. 
Why is he talking about financial integrity? I think it's pretty simple, actually. Because Paul had one fundamental desire, and his desire was this, that nothing in his life, nothing or anyone else's, would distract from the person and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had to, to pay attention to how he was living his life and how he was handling, and he couldn't be obsessed with stuff, either an abundance or a lack thereof. And, and while the quote he gave in verse 35, Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if you get out, if you get on Bible Gateway and look around, you're going to find out that nowhere in the four Gospels did Jesus ever say that. It's more blessed to give than receive. He must have said it some other time, and those four guys didn't write it down for us. But isn't that exactly what Jesus came here and did? Gave? My Bible says, and so does yours, that Jesus Christ came to earth and he gave up his what? His life. For you, for me. He sacrificed everything. He, he took on our sin. He went to the cross, to the grave. He rose from the dead. Again, Paul says, he has gone all the way. He has given everything for us. So guys, point the people to Jesus. Point the people to Jesus. Let them see him in, in your speech, in your example, in your sacrificial service. Be sure that the main thing always stays the main thing. However little or much, God chooses to bless you. Never take your eye off the ball. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about him. And with that, Paul handed them the baton of leadership. It's up to you guys. By God's grace, take it from here. He entrusted the believers in Ephesus to their spiritual care. He said hello. He said goodbye. And in between, what he told them could be summarized in the big idea of today's message, which is this. He said, guys, boldly follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Follow boldly in the footsteps of Jesus. And listen, can I tell you a little secret? That's not just advice for elders. That's advice for all of us. Follow boldly in the footsteps of Jesus wherever he has set your course to go. Father, may we do that. Paul again said long, long ago, he said, be an imitator of me as I am of Jesus Christ. Not because he wanted people to pay attention to him, but because he wanted people to look to Jesus and live for him. Father, you've given each one of us in this room unique assignments, unique opportunities. You didn't create them for someone else. You created them for us. And Father, while this is primary addressed to those who have charge over us, our shepherds, Lord, we all have areas to shepherd. We have marriages and families and children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors and Bible studies and Sunday school classes. And, and we all need to boldly follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Father, my prayer with that in mind is that you would take the things of truth spoken here this morning, not just in this sermon, but throughout this service, seal them to our hearts that we might live more fully for you. Take the things of the flesh that are irrelevant and let them be forgotten so that we may truly leave here today and go into the next week living for Jesus above all else. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.